You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermons online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Good morning. Good to see everybody today. Today was announced it's a back to basics sermon as we do the first Lord's Day of each month. Today it's one of the most foundational things possible. It is the order that we find in a created universe. This world is organized on the principles laid down in the beginning. The fact that in seven days, actually six plus a rest day, God made the world and all things in it. Everything we have and our whole view of this place should be based on that. This is such a fundamental thing that we don't always think about it, that it becomes for us sort of a presuppositional thing. Uh, we just presume it true. And now that's not without basis of reason or evidence, but it is true based on the word of God. Those things that we uh, give an account for, give a reason for, those things that we are able to and often do need to talk about, we're usually pretty good at articulating them. But sometimes things are so far in the background, so basic and so assumed that we don't articulate them often, but then when we find them challenged uh, and we find some rival system or rival thought put up against it, we're not prepared to articulate it. And we just go, well, that's just the way it is. And somebody says, no, it's not. No, we say, that's fundamental reality. And they go, no, it's not. And if there's anything that we have learned in the last few decades and last few years, particularly of our culture, things that we thought were basic fundamental reality uh, may not be uh, appear to be so or treated as so by other folks. So uh, what we've had in this lesson series is so far uh, basic things largely of the New Testament. We had the uh, first sermon that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Lord, and we saw how that uh, is uh, laid out in the New Testament. That is the heart of the gospel. We talked about our response to that of saving faith and how we respond in, in faith to the things above. We saw the great commandments that uh, those uh, people of God would follow, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That'll come up again today, as it often does. Uh, and also loving your neighbor as yourself. We then talked about the group of people uh, who have this faith and this dedication to following these commandments in common. And as the Lord added to their number in Acts 2, we found the church was then formed and organized uh, by God, and we saw what was stated there. Then we try to live in that way in a faithful and holy life, and we do it toward the great hope of the resurrection and the teaching of what's in the afterlife. So we had those things of New Testament. Now we're kind of stepping back even farther into uh, the, the uh, foundations and fundamentals of things as we talk about order in a created universe. The fact that the world, the cosmos we see, was, perfect, uh, was purposely created. That it was here for a reason by somebody who did it. So somebody did a thing for a reason. Now, if you're ever going to judge what anybody else does, knowing what they did and why they did it really will be helpful to you in, in judging uh, and assessing what was done. 
Because sometimes there are things that you don't realize why somebody did a thing. Oh, that's terrible. Did you hear that down at the hospital yesterday, the doctors cut somebody's arm off? Oh, that's terrible. But mo- what would most people say if they heard that? They go, well, I wonder what, what was the occasion for that? What terrible thing happened that there needed to be an amputation? But uh, so the, the guy cutting somebody's arm off might be the most helpful and beneficial thing in the world. A guy cutting somebody's arm off might be the most cruel and inhuman act they could possibly do, right? It all depends upon the place and the purpose. Well, we live in a purposeful universe. The amount of people who don't think this world has a purpose, or at least they pretend like they don't know this world has a purpose, is is shocking. And so if we turn back to those thrilling days of yesteryear, to the Old Testament, for a couple of introductory thoughts, I think we might find some interesting things in the book of Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah was uh, known as the weeping prophet uh, because he had a terrible message to give his people that uh, uh, destruction and captivity were coming, their nation was coming to an end. The, the patriots of his day thought he was a, a traitor, he was a turncoat, he was on the side of the Babylonians, and eventually uh, they had him uh, uh, watched, then later put under guard, and then put in prison, and they had his writings burned. Well, if some people today took Jeremiah very seriously and found out what Jeremiah said, they might want to start burning his books again, because Jeremiah said these two but basic fundamental truths. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three, he said, Can an Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That's pretty harsh, right? Those guys can't change their skin. The leopard can't change his fur. And you guys can't change your sin. And then he also said in Jeremiah 30 and 6, and this would get him sent right to the, uh, the sensitivity re-education camp. Jeremiah 30 and verse 6, Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Straight to the good hawk. Burn those writings again. King Jehoiada had the right idea. Put him back in the well. What do you mean, can a man give birth? I saw it on the pages of the New York Times. The man gave birth. No, somebody they called a man gave birth, but it wasn't a man. This is how far we are from the fundamental realities. Jeremiah rightly pointed out there are things that were unchangeable. These people in their hardened nature of sin were unchangeable. Also their skin color and their sex, these are unchangeable. Today, people think these are malleable at will, that anybody can do anything they want, and to tell them otherwise is to actually violently oppress them. They say it's violence when we say, no, you can't. They say words are violence when they're the ones who actually practice violence against those that they shout down and run out of the public square. The problem is that we have such an idea of freedom and liberty that we mean it to be we can do anything we want. And when I say anything, I mean anything. That there is nothing that you can't do if you don't want. And if somebody else says that you can't or that violates basic reality or that's just not actually factual, then they'll claim that you are oppressing them. You know, and, and it, it was a massive farce uh, some 45, 50 years ago when in a Monty Python skit in the life of Brian... A man said he wanted to be a woman and bear a child, and his friend said you couldn't, 
And he says, you're oppressing me. And there's actually been a bit of controversy in the last few months with a re-release of the DVD version of that film as to whether to cut that scene out or leave it. And the Monty Python guys, uh, those great champions of virtue and free speech, <laughs> said, no, we're not changing it. And I think the reason they're not changing it is because it's funny. And, and actually, it is funny. But this is just how deranged, deviant, and demented we have become that children, and I mean this generally and broadly, not uh, any particular one, not looking at you, son, but just children in general. But children in general are not taught, and, and I have to say it was even lacking some in my time and generation of never mind when, but the respect of rules, the respect of institutions, the respect of authority. And what was celebrated then for comedy's sake was defiance and deviance. And so I'm of the age of, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, George Carlin did his famous routine. He knew there was a list of words not to say. He made sure he said every word. And, and every kind of comedy in society and culture was based on defiance of norms, of subverting norms, of, of, of uh, rebelling against authority. Well, entire generation now has grown up with that, and they no longer respect the authority, and they no longer find it a, a comedic thing to transgress, but they find that, that anything that would seek to bind them at all, they find that to be the transgression. And they find that to be the offense. Not in giving offense by violating a cultural or, or societal or biblical norm, but instead insisting on those or saying that those acts exist, that is then considered to be the oppression. Like it says in Judges twice, in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, we have a king, as it were. We, we have leaders. But it's our leaders now who are leading in the transgression. Our leaders lead in the transgression. And it's, just, it's, a sad, it's sad and it's a shame. The, this last month for Pride Month at the White House, three large flags were hung on the side of the White House. There were two American flags, but the center flag was the trans flag. Somebody posted, I saw it on social media, they said they were in Rome, and for Pride Month, they only saw one trans flag. And they were kind of happy about that. But the one trans flag they saw was on the American embassy. Our king is now the one who does what is right in his own eyes. Our authority. The Proverbs say, There's a, the way of a fool seems right in his own eyes. And another proverb says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes. But we have a different thing entirely. We as Christians, seeing that male and female were made for a purpose, right? male and female were made for and with a purpose. And it's not an interchangeable thing, but it's a fundamental reality of how God made us. Then we go with how God did things and try to conform ourselves in our best knowledge possible to that in faith. So that in Matthew 22, it says this, Jesus asked what was the most important thing. He said, you'd love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second like unto it, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The whole thing of our entire life 
in God hangs on two things. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. Why is it that God is first above all things? Why is God above me? That's a basic question that many people today would ask. Why is God, this invisible being you say exists and revealed himself a long time ago in, in this uh, old book that's kind of too long to read, why do I put him first above all things? Why is he more important than me? He's more important than me because he is the maker. There is order, authority, and dominion in this world, and it starts by he who made it. The one who made it is the operator of it. He's the sustainer of it. It's for his glory. It's for his purpose. Genesis 1.1, it starts this way in the great book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the gospel, we begin this way. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to being through him. And apart from him, nothing came to being that has come to being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. So there's an incomprehensibility of the things we're presenting today. Many will people, people will find them to be ridiculous, to be old-fashioned, to, to be just not even worth thinking about. You can't be serious, someone would say. Someone will likely say. Yes, we're serious. You don't comprehend it because of the darkness within you. But if you would turn to the light in God, you'd see it was made for him and by him. Colossians 1, about Jesus again. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things and he holds all things together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself might come to have the first place in everything. That's what Christianity is about, that Christ would have the first place in everything. When I know what is the engine, I can pretty well guess where the rest of the train is going, right? And so in this case, he's the head of everything. Well, if he's my head and he's your head, well, I know we're both looking in the same direction. I know we're going to have a lot of communion and we'll have a lot of concord. We'll have a lot of things in agreement as we both look to him. He has the first place in everything. He's the head of the body. There might be different parts of the body, right? Go to 1 Corinthians. There's an eye, there's an ear, there's a hand, there's a foot, there's an ear. There's all these different parts of the body. And we might have a little bit at times of a friction of sorting that out. Hey, I want to be the ear. Doug says, no, I'm the ear. I was the ear first. I was, I'm a better ear. No, you're not. No, we might have that kind of petty little squabble. But we all want to be attached to the body, right? We, uh, we just studied in John 15 most recently. Uh, I am the vine, ye are the branches, right? Does one branch say, I'm a bigger branch, I'm a more important branch, by the way? No, <laughs> you're, just, you're attached to the vine. But we, we all are sustained by the same thing. He holds all things together. He organizes it all. And our purpose then, knowing that this is our place in the world, as a created being, we're not self-created. I know sometimes, you know, some of the humanists and some of the, the science fiction guys, they like to talk about, you know, us as self-replicating. It's not just self-replicating, right? 
you didn't replicate yourself. Now, you may have a part in procreation for the next generation, but you didn't get here and choose your family and your time or your, your, your gender or anything. You just got here as he gave you. And then if you find a cooperative partner and the, the purpose of procreation and filling the earth and uh, filling uh, God's instruction from the beginning to be fruitful, multiply, uh, have dominion, if you have a part in that, then you'll have a part in procreation for the next generation. But his parents will tell you, what about that one that comes from that? Well, I may have wanted a boy that's a certain way. I may have wanted a boy that looked at a certain way and, and had certain skills and certain talents and did certain things. But what I get? I got the one I got. Right? I, end up, I, did, I did get some that look and sound like me. I, I can't, can't deny that. But I don't control them, right? They are accountable to God themselves. And so we have a place with God and in God. And if we get outside of that, then what's our place and what's our purpose? Well, then we got to find a new one. In Revelation 4, we have this. God is first cause, thus worthy of respect and honor. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. Because of your will, they existed and were created. Well, if they exist by his will, then they should do his will. That includes me, and that includes you. So there are certainly some implications then of creation. There is order, and there's purpose, and there's accountability. From the very beginning, in the account of God of the world, the world is ordered, and the world is structured. That's why we can have science. We can have science and various branches of science because this whole world is founded on an order and a structure. There are physical laws. Now, sometimes we find the limits of physical laws, right? And we think about, uh, we think about back to your high school chemistry class. If you add one electron to, to this, uh, this atom, it changes the whole thing, right? It becomes a different element. And remember those tests back in chemistry class? Over here were the volatile things, and over here were the noble gases that didn't react. And it was just one or two electrons different from very different substances that behaved in very different ways. But if you look up the electron count, and, uh, and look at it because of the way the shell, the electron structure, it'll inter- it will uh, interact with this other element. But it's always in very, usually it's in very predictable ways until so the scientist blows his lab up because there was another law he didn't think about. But or hadn't yet discovered, but there's an order to it. It can be laid out, and it's repeatable. And so we can have science, and we can put these things to our use. And so we can study uh, in things like aerodynamics and aeronautics and astronomy and astrophysics and chemistry and climatology and electronics, and we can have all different kinds of engineering. And we can look at the natural world and we can put it to our use through agronomy or we can study its structures in anatomy and biology in bacteriology and botany and forestry and geology in meteorology and seismology. Then we got all the medical stuff where we look at our own bodies and how they're fearfully and wonderfully made with the cardiologist and the dermatologist and the gynecologist and the gerontologist and the immunologist and the radiologist and the virologist. And then there's the people that start studying the animals, the zoologist and why can we have all these ologies and ist? Because there's an order. They were made in an orderly way. 
And we get real excited when we appear to find exceptions because that teaches us a lot of times um, further about the rules because it doesn't fit our rules. But the basic things, they fit into rules. What happens when I drop this? We know. What happens when I throw this? We know. What happens when you throw it back? We know. <laughs> we know. There, there is a predictability to all of these things. This is because a world was formed by God. In Genesis 1, on day 1, he made light. And on day 2, he made the great waters separated by an expanse. And on day 3, he made the earth and the seas, and he separated those out and made plants. God formed all this stuff. And then he spent three, the next three days going back over the first three, and he filled them with their various uh, things. Uh, so day one was light, and three days later came the lights. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars. And you think, well, how did you have light before the sun? I don't know, but he made light, then he made the sun three days later. He, he filled it with this light. He filled it in with the right structures. First, he made the waters and separated them with an expanse. And three days later, in day five, he came back and he, he uh, made the oceans. And he made the sky and he filled both those with life. And then on day three, he had made the earth and the sea separated with the plants. And on day six, he came back and he filled all that with living creatures. So there's a day of forming and there's a day of finishing and filling. And why he went through it in two passes, taking a three-day and a three-day, I don't know. And then he said, for his own cause and purpose, on the seventh day, I'm resting. You know, he could have done it all in an instant. He could have just snapped it all into spot. In why he took six days to do it and why he took a day of rest except to help us. And he gave the people a day of rest based on that. And we still, you know, we don't exactly have the Sabbath instructions of, of keeping a day of rest, but we do have a seventh day sanctified, right? Why are we here every Lord's Day, right? We're here once a week. We have a, a seventh day commemoration, no longer primarily of creation, but of the resurrection. So we now have the Lord's Day instead of the Sabbath. But we have these as God made them. So that's Genesis 1. We have an order to it all. But then we start to see more of its order and its purpose in the second telling of creation. Genesis 1 tells us creation from the perspective almost of as you're on an outside observing the whole earth. Genesis 2 tells us of creation as if we're in the garden itself. And it's not a separate story. It's a, it's a different telling. It's another telling of the same story from another perspective. So now we've got the, the super close-up. And in the garden, we find a man. And we find a man who's given to dress and keep that garden and animals in that garden to fill it and animals that he named, but nobody for him. And then we find the creation of his wife. We find the creation of Eve. And together then, they can be fruitful and multiply and fill this great earth that God gave. But also from that, from that very first in Genesis 2 is the idea of accountability. Because God gave some instructions. He gave two positive instructions. Dress and keep the garden and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now he wasn't going to do that second one until Eve came along. But he'd already been told. And then there, of course there's that one negative instruction. We know that. Don't eat of that tree. And he said, if you do, you'll die. Well, in Genesis 3, they test that out, and they find out they did, that they would die. And so Satan lied about uh, the reason for the prohibition, that if you do it, you'll be like God. 
And Satan is always lying about things. He twists all of God's structures and all of God's purposes. And we see that today in the things we mentioned while ago in the introduction. The purposes and structures made by God are being twisted by Satan, as he has always done. But they found out that they were accountable, and then came the consequences of sin. So in the first three chapters of Genesis, the big takeaways are there's order, there's purpose, and there's accountability. And what is there still? In our lives, in our lives individually, in our lives together, in family and community, and in congregationally, before God, there is order, purpose, and accountability. But a lot of folks think that's awful stifling. That's very traditional. Well, it's very godly, and they hate that. And so there's another story put forth, another story of origin, another story that is devoid of purpose. Now, I find this to be a fantastically unbelievable story. I know people talk about creation as an unbelievable myth, but I find this other story to be far more fantastical and unbelievable. The idea that nothing used to exist before there was time. So in non-time, nothing existed. Then somehow, nothing exploded into everything and started time. From there, over a long chunk of time, most of the chunks of everything formed into the structures of galaxies and of stars and planets. And somehow, a little bit of that meaningless stuff that was left over on one inconsequential, meaningless planet uh, orbiting a meaningless star, some of those little extra bits got together and they made life for themselves. First, very simple. And then it evolved upward into complexity where eventually some of that leftover stuff on this meaningless planet circling around this inconsequential star, it began to think for itself. And then this self-thinking stuff Develop some deep ideas about a creator and purpose, but other uh, better informed and actually more cynical, deep thinking uh, leftover stuff said, no, that's just silly. We're all here by accident anyway. And by the way, uh, some of that leftover now deep thinking stuff decided that men could have babies despite what Jeremiah said. And I find that to be an utterly fantastical story. And once upon a time when we had such institutions, well, we still have institutions of higher learning and of incarceration, but we used to have a third-class institutions where they had these nice white jackets that strapped in the back. And, and some of those people used to go to places like that, but we don't have that kind of institution anymore because that would infringe on somebody's rights even though we're treating them for their own good or something like that. But in this alternative creation story, there is no order and there is no purpose and ultimately, they don't believe morally there's any accountability. Because there is no higher spiritual level, and there is no God beyond us. Uh, there are two folks, of whom I like to give short quotes now, uh, both of them named Huxley. Uh, two grandsons of a guy named uh, Thomas Huxley. Thomas Huxley was famous way back in the day. He was a guy who was known as Darwin's bulldog. So Charles Darwin wrote the book on evolution. One of the guys who popularized it, defended it in debate, and and did a lot of the uh, work to make it popular was a guy named uh, uh, Thomas Huxley. Two of his grandsons, one of whom became knighted and became Sir John Huxley, he was the first head of UNESCO, he was a British diplomat, did a lot of other things. 
But he, like his grandpa, was an evolutionist and an atheist. Huxley said this, John Julian did. He said, Darwinism removed the whole idea of God as creator of organisms from the sphere of national or of, of rational discussion. Darwin pointed out that no supernatural designer was needed. And so he said, basically, after Darwin, it's not rational to consider God. And if you talk about God in some of these institutions, you will not be considered rational, reasonable, or worthy of discourse with. Now, his brother, who's more famous than him, Aldous Huxley, he wrote Brave New World, several other things. He said this about uh, these things. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. No accountability, no purpose, no order. Consequently, I assumed it had none and was able without difficulty to find reasons for that assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he should not personally do what he wants. For myself, as no doubt many of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. So we were liberated when we thought, it, when we said it's all meaningless. Uh, liberated for what? Uh, the liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from certain political and economic systems and liberation from certain systems of morality. And there you have the intellectual heft behind the free love movement and all that went with that. All right, so in God, in a created universe, there is order, there's purpose, there's accountability. In an uncreated universe, which many people would pretend to be uh, in and think that is the most rational and reasonable way, and they'll argue for that, there isn't an order that can be depended on. So you, can, you can't have disorder if you don't have order, right? Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with anything you do if there's no purpose that you should be following, and there's no accountability for what you do. Because if there's no God, who's the ultimate accountability? Well, it just powers and system of governments, and well, we'll just change those as we need. Let me go to, probably not where you're expecting, but let me go to one passage and just read it. Isaiah 59. Of old, in a time of depressing darkness, Isaiah talked to a people in sin and rebellion. He told them where they were at. And he also told them what the cure would be. And I think this helps us see, you know, like in, in that uh, wonderful 70s song from Sticks, haven't we been here before? Yeah, well, we have. We've been at cultural moments like this before. And uh, there's a key to unlock the same door. Sorry, that Sticks. That's not Bible. But there, there's a key to understanding it. There, there is a solution. It's go to God and look at things of God and realize even though we have these people, they act like they can't see the naked, and I mean that quite literally at times, they can't see the naked sin in front of their face. But you know what? God knows, and God still does. And we recognize this, and we are not the odd one out. They are the one in high rebellion. So Isaiah 59, a familiar passage in the first two verses, the separation of sin. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. So you people live separate from God? Yeah, because God is 
not listening anymore. God has cut himself off from you just as you've cut himself off from him. So it becomes a land of sin after sin. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave spider webs. He who eats of the eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity and are acts of violence in his hands. Their feet run to evil, and they, don't, they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. I could probably substitute that for the morning newspaper. Well, if I still took the newspaper. But uh, that's today. That is, that is the world of sin just like ours. And so now come the consequences. Verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We walk along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as at twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we're like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. There is our cultural condition. It's an appalling situation then. We're headed full steam into that now as verse 14 and 15 turn toward the end that is in light. It tells us again just how bad off we are. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth is stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself pray. Now the Lord saw and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. So now the Lord's going to act. And he saw there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arms brought salvation to him, and his, salvation, his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion. The redeemer, the intercessor, the one that God has clothed in righteousness. He has come and will come is the prophecy we know as Christ has come. But we know he comes with wrath for those who won't repent. This redeemer and intercessor who was sent to set things right. 
one of the ways to set things right is to get rid of what is wrong. And if they persist in wrong and won't repent, they'll be on the wrong end of his sharp sword. So verse 21, as for me, my covenant is with him, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, for now and forevermore. And so here is the blessing given to the one that God made the covenant with, given to the one who God gave his spirit, given to the one whom God gave his word. You will have offspring after you. Those offspring will have offspring after them. And so there will be a continuance now of this righteous group, of these people, of this intercessing redeemer. And so that's who we follow. The one that God sent in righteousness. The one who shows us light. Though the world be dark, we're in his light, right? In him, we're to be the light of the world. We're to be the salt of the earth. And the promise is for us that his word will be in our mouth. And it will be as long as we're faithful. And it will be in the, our offspring's offspring's mouth. As it says, for now and forevermore. And so the light would be sent in that time of darkness. And though it seems like darkness, <laughs> darkness is certainly having a good day. Right? If this were a sporting event, the commentators would all be talking about how darkness seems to have all the momentum. But there's going to be a comeback of righteousness and light and right. And we want to be with that. We want to be on the side of the God of order, the God who sends a helper, the God who will limit these things and set them right. And this prophecy ultimately is one of Christ. And so in a dark world, where do we turn? We turn to the light of Christ. We put his word in our mouth and we hew closely to him. And that is what God intends us to do in a dark world. Again, so many people see the world without purpose, without meaning. Some of them use that for license because they just want to live a licentious life. Other people have been taught by those people and they go, I don't, that's not the way. And they're, they're suffering and groping like these along the wall in Isaiah 59. They're groping for something better. Let's shine the light brightly, the light of order, the light of Christ, the light of life, so that some of those groping might find it and so that we can stay in its brightness. With that, then we'll close. Ask if you need to come to Christ, the one who brings us salvation and light, the one who came to intercede, and the only one who saves us. If you need to come to him, confessing him, or you need to come back, we ask you to come now as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.